So learning a language is a lot like making pickles. I think it really is. That should be the title of the episode. Hey everyone and uh, welcome to another Actual Fluency podcast. This is episode six of the fourth season. And in this episode, I'm talking with Mr. Andrew Feinberg, who is a contributor to Duolingo's Norwegian course and also a super guy. So I hope you will enjoy this little talk with Andrew where we get into loads of topics related to culture, language learning, living abroad, food even, (laughs) and uh, just a really nice, you know, basic chat as the actual Fluency podcast was meant to be. Before I let you go into this recording, I just wanted to say a couple of things. The first thing being that I know there's been a bit of a technical problem in the last few episodes where my voice has been kind of low and the guest has been kind of high. And I was only recently uh, made aware of this. um, And after listening to some of the recent episodes, I can only agree you know, these episodes sound quite different in the finished file compared to what I hear in the editing lab. I should have been more sort of uh, pertinent to look, actually test the finished product as well. And then, you know, once I realized there was a problem, I tried to fix it and it brings about uh, some new problems. First of all, if I am to boost, so this is all in one recording and audio uh, lovers out there are probably thinking, what, what, you're recording both into the same file? And yes, unfortunately I do. It's uh, the most uh, stable method I've found. I used to record two separate tracks, but that got confusing really quickly, and it was sometimes hard to line them up, and it also involved a lot of work. And ever since then, I've tried to use a program that puts them down into one what I probably should have done is record stereo. That means one voice in one side and one voice in the other. So I could adjust the volume separately in a, in a mono track later. But I didn't do that. And so now we have this problem. And I looked into it and I tried to use some good software. And I can't really fix it for a few reasons. The main reason is that if I boost my audio only, it does sound a little bit better, but it also increases all the noise. So for instance, my old laptop that sounds like a, I don't know, I don't even know what to compare it to. It's really noisy and uh, usually you can't hear it because I'm, my microphone is, you know, pretty good usually. But if I had to boost it, you'll hear all the background noise much clearer. So I, I tried it out a little bit and I realized that, you know what, it's probably better if you have me slightly lower so you can turn it up on your phone or device or whatever and then the guest slightly higher i know it's an inconvenience and i'll do my best from the next recording forward to improve this but for now i'm just gonna have to apologize and say you know there'll be some noise in this episode because i've turned up the my uh, my side of the conversation basically so you might hear you know my computer in the background and stuff The other thing I just wanted to uh, quickly mention is that I was quite sick during this episode. I had just come home from the Polyglot Gathering in Berlin, I believe, and I got a pretty bad flu about two weeks after I came home. And this is when we recorded this just on the back end of a flu. So if I sound a little bit, you know, uh, let's say awful, it's because that's unfortunately how I was feeling that day. I hope that 
Andrew's great voice and energy can counter for this because I was really, really not feeling very well. I probably should have um, postponed the interview, but I didn't want to reschedule for Andrew because we already rescheduled a couple of times due to technical problems. But anyway, uh, thank you so much. And if there are any of my patrons listening out there, I just want to say thank you for supporting the show. If you want to come become a patron and hang out and buy weekly hangouts and uh, get some behind the scenes uh, files and enjoyment, then go to actualfluency.com forward slash support. I really appreciate it. And we had our first hangout the other day and it's good fun. I hope to have loads of those in the future. But anyway, enjoy this talk with Andrew Feinberg. Americans are not usually totally into multilingualism. So where did you find the passion originally? I echo the exact same storyline that so many of your guests have had. That's is that right. they had, they had uh, Hebrew in Hebrew school. And it was a thing that I had. And it um, I didn't learn any words exactly. Like we didn't know, we didn't learn the language exactly. We sort of just read, we learned how to read. Right. And that was enough for your bar mitzvah or your bat mitzvah when you were 13. And then you sort of was like, that was supposed to be the end of your Hebrew education for most people because most people aren't really that enthused. Like most, this might have to do with like the low attendance rates for reform synagogues, (laughs) but, but like they really wasn't much of an effort to get people to learn the actual Hebrew language. So when you, I know when a lot of Jews in America, when they read prayers in Hebrew, they know what the prayers are about, but they don't know what they're actually reading at any given time. Like you might have the entire, you might have the four questions or you might have like the mourner's Kaddish, which is like this prayer that you say when someone has died, you have it memorized and it's sort of within your your brain because it's it's a beautiful prayer but you don't know what you're actually saying hmm. and i i think that that's really crazy <laughs> and i can't wait to i'm hebrew is on my list of languages to learn in the future i'm not at it right now but part of the reason i'd like to learn it is so that i can actually know what i've been saying all these years and i'm not <laughs> religious anymore I don't consider myself uh, any religion, mm-hmm. but I think that it's just a, an important part of my heritage to know what it's about. So how did I get from there to Norwegian is another story. I'd, I'd say that I, I wanted to pick basically the, like, the opposite of my culture in a lot of ways. And I thought that like pillaging Vikings was, was pretty different and, and not at all like anything that, sort of I was I, I, I considered my own heritage so it, it just seemed cool to me it seemed like a really interesting parallel mythology right sort of alongside the Greeks and the Romans you had the thunder god and the the mischief god and like all kinds of weird stories that were made up around Norse mythology and stuff that contributed a lot to the whole folklore of the Lord of the Rings and eventually the Game of Thrones Song of Ice and Fire storyline. And I thought that that was just really 
really something worth looking into. And then I started learning the language when I was 16. Uh, I had a friend who was really into this language. It was like uh, a friend of a friend who she met through the internet. And uh, I've just been learning it ever since. And I applied to Duolingo. And then I started teaching it on Duolingo. And then I've just I've been on there for over a year now as a contributor to the course. Spreading the love. <laughs> Spreading the Norwegian love, yeah. There you go. That's fantastic. And so the interest into culture led led you to go into the language behind the culture and then you you sort of as you develop your interest for Norwegian you've you've grown that to now you're interested in studying more languages. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. I I first started learning German in high school because I I wanted to learn Norwegian, but they didn't have it at the university where I was. What at. a surprise! <laughs> the closest thing, and I and I actually sort of expected them to because they had crazy, crazy different. They had Swahili. They had um, they had. Hindi and Farsi and they had all kinds of languages because I went to BU's high school and you could take anything at BU right? but Boston University but I not Norwegian surprise surprise they didn't have they didn't even have Swedish and I felt oh god and I have to take German <laughs> but German really did help me out with my Norwegian oh yeah it's like it's the vocabulary and a little bit of the grammar but of course German is a lot more difficult and uh and polish which i'm learning right now is just insane <laughs> i i sort of ventured into polish because i wanted to i wanted to step into the slavic languages i know i'm going to be studying in norway in august and the most popular slavic language there is actually polish Right, because of the the migration for work and and etc. And so, what are you going to study there? I'm studying. It's kind of a complicated thing. It's called transnationalism, globalization, and culture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be hard to put on a CV, but <laughs> it's um, it's like a mix of political science and economics, and the studying of uh, trade and international relations and. Everything that it's pretty pertinent to what American politics is is sort of focused on right now with international trade deals. And I know that I often see people posting about like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the the impending free trade agreement between Europe and the U.S. And uh, that's going to be just fascinating and hopefully a little bit marketable <laughs> well it sounds exciting and if you pair it up with a few languages i guess it's it's a winner oh i hope so and is it in norwegian or english it's completely in english okay that's I didn't wanna... international uh, internationally minded. exactly they do that a lot in scandinavia it's not i mean even in denmark there's a lot of courses offered by the universities in English because they're trying to attract foreign students such as yourself to come in uh, and enrich the environment so to speak with uh, different points of view and 
different experiences? I think it's wonderful because grad school in the U.S. can run you a hundred thousand dollars easily, <laughs> and you, and in Norway it's completely free. And so many people in my life, when I said I got into grad school in Norway, asked me if it's really free, then why doesn't everyone do it? <laughs> and I always respond with, "That's a great question." I really don't know why people don't do it more often. Well, but it's, it's sort of inconvenient. It's sort of far away. I mean, the, the, the selection of courses in English is quite limited, as you probably know. I mean, you find usually the, the types of courses they would have in English would be something like that, you know, international relations, uh, some languages maybe. Uh, but if you want to study, I mean, you can't go to Norway and study to be a doctor in English, you know, so or lawyer or whatever people want to <laughs> become these days. Um, so I think it's probably a, a combination of like, it's far away. <laughs> if you're an American, it's really far away. And uh, they, they just don't have that many courses if you're not interested in international whatever, connections, politics, um, something like that. So, But I maybe a lot of people just don't know. could be an awareness. I think thing. a lot of people don't know. Like, I have another friend who's... Uh, who's studying in Germany for free. And the whole idea of going to college for free to uh, to an American who is less than 30 years old is just blows our minds. <laughs> it completely blows yeah. our minds. It doesn't make sense. Um, and it's how, I mean, public universities in the U.S. by and large were free until... I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, like especially in um, the famous UCs in California were all free. Mm -hmm. And now they're really struggling financially and the costs keep going up. Right. So you have cheaper universities, community colleges. Yeah. Right. But still not free. Still not free. Mm. And I, I, yeah, it's just, it hasn't ever sort of been discussed. Like it's sort of, like so many people in the U.S. are so buried in debt because of their education, but yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, to see? Yeah, it. but I mean, it's not totally uncommon for people in in countries with free university to have student debt when they leave university. It's just not as extreme. I know most of my peers definitely, when they finish their five year degree, would <laughs> would still have you know maybe a mid range two two figure debt in US dollars so there's still some but it's not 300,000 <laughs> no and that's so unfair to give a human being right at the start I think making so too I think so too it's, it doesn't make any not sense even a, yeah it doesn't make any sense and, and, and frankly I don't understand why so many people do it but I guess it's just we're in this kind of template of life or the script that it's prescribed to all of us that oh after school you should go to university get a good job work for 30 years or 40 years whatever get a gold watch and then you retire yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the, the the key here so and a lot of money is made on on the students as well so what can you do <laughs> So let's go back to your Norwegian uh, learning. How did you? I mean, you're you're looking around in your hometown. Was it in at Boston? You were thinking about starting to learn it. What did you look for initially? Like, did you go online? So it's like how to learn Norwegian, or did you go to the bookshop, or how did you get started? 
I got started by going to the Barnes and Noble book sh- bookstore at the BU campus, which is right below the huge Sitgo sign. Mm-hmm. Which, if you've ever seen pictures of Boston, like there's a giant Sitgo sign. Regardless, that's where the the store is, and uh, and I just flipped through the foreign. They had a huge foreign book section, and for Norwegian, they had a teach yourself book, and they had some other easy beginner books that would not even take you past like A zero if there was such a level. Um, and I took the t- teach yourself book and when you have so much else to do in high school, it, it like you couldn't, I couldn't really focus. I was on like the, the rowing team and I was doing all kinds of other stuff. So I didn't have a hell of a lot of time to devote to it, but I got far enough into it to sort of get over all the initial like tiny difficulties with the pronunciation and like when to pronounce the G and when to pronounce the D and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it, it sort of laid dormant in my brain for a few years. I, I had it, I, I never really was very fluent in it. I had no one to practice with. And then I started on the, the German journey and then only until college did I ever pick it up again. And I picked it up again when I was in Austria for study abroad. And I went to the link website, which is run by Steve Kaufman from Canada mm-hmm. and his website I think they offered Norwegian beta, but they offered Swedish as well. And I looked into Swedish and I learned like, it's crazy because it's such a related language that it would be easy to say that it would confuse you. But I think it really helps my Norwegian when I transitioned back to Norwegian to just see the comparisons and to solidify like there's a lot of discussion about do you ever want to learn a language that's that's sort of in the periphery of this language in terms of its relatives and there's a lot of discussion that that is a bad thing that it will confuse you right uh but in in searching for a slavic language to learn i also picked up some books on czech and croatian and i learned a little bit of russian and it just, to me, it like to have the background noise of those other languages, I think really helps you tune into the differences and similarities in a way that I think really works for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it can still be easy like to, to mess up even in this like late stage like i remember being at the airport in oslo and saying jättebra instead of kämpebra <laughs> and <laughs> and this is like years and years after so i mean i think like it can it can produce funny little results but i think ultimately it was a good decision i made to just sort of like see the differences right and if you want to learn swedish later then you've got those basics as well yeah, I I really don't feel like I need to learn Swedish because uh, <laughs> well, me because neither. we don't... yeah I mean it depends on as long as you know if you have one of those three mutually intelligible languages as long as you know what you need to do to sound 
like suitable to the person you're speaking with, mm-hmm. you can you can get by. I had when I was in your home country uh, about a month ago, I had like a half an hour conversation with someone in Danish. Wow. And it felt really sweet, but like like this like we both had to speak really clearly as best as we could. Sure. And I had to knew like I had to have had like the the Norwegian that I had on Duolingo. I'm sorry, the Danish, in order to sort of understand, like just the the feeling for it, because it can sound like when a Norwegian tries to speak in Danish, it can sound like it's exaggerated. Oh yeah, yeah. Like it can sound like um, I often hear that like Americans, Americans, when they try to speak in a British accent, they often sound like Oliver Twist. <laughs> <laughs> and um <laughs> sound like Oliver Twist that's hilarious. Yeah, and um and the same can be said when Norwegians cuz Norwegians are fascinated by the Danish accent. Sure, yeah. But they they often overdo it when they So how does it feel as a, as an American with this uh, mutual uh you know understanding because I can imagine that it must be harder on some points to understand the others because you don't have that kind of very deep uh, long experience with the Scandinavian languages but did you have I mean apart from you having to speak a little slower and clearer which by the way is the same for for me speaking to Norwegians and Swedish people uh, it's exactly the same there's no difference there but did you find did you find it more challenging than you expected or did you find it pretty much as you expected in terms of difficulty. I had had one other experience uh, when I was living in Boston where we I had a little meetup with the Scandinavian enthusiasts and there was one woman there who had learned an old Danish dialect from like a hundred years ago okay. that was passed down in her family like after they left Denmark and it was kind of an older version of Danish. And I was able to speak with her just fine. Uh-huh. And I felt like, oh, that's just a, you know, of co- like Danish and, and Norwegian were basically the same written language for hundreds of years. So I felt like that would be an easy enough transition as long as we spoke slowly enough. Sure. But when I, I think I only realized that I could speak with Swedes when I was at the first polyglot Berlin conference a year ago that I went to mm-hmm. and there were a few a few women there from Finland but they only spoke Swedish <laughs> they didn't speak Finland they they grew up without learning the Finnish language but speaking with them when they spoke sweet Swedish was just completely no no problem I and that really took took me aback because I'd never tried speaking with a Swede and it was just a it was far easier than i thought it would be That's i think cool. in part be, in part because of the like learning the sound differences that i did when i was in vienna learning it on my own right it's pretty cool though isn't it you just get a language for free yeah it's um <laughs> something i've tried to do in like i've tried to maximize the utility like often when I research what language to learn next, I often Google like what's the most mutually intelligible <laughs> Slavic language, 
and because I have a my my sister's boyfriend's brother-in-law, which is quite the connection. Yeah, but he's he's from uh, Belarus and he speaks Russian. And speaking with him, he says, "Oh, like there's really no big deal. Like when two people speak a Slavic language, you can pretty much get what they're th- what they're talking about if they're really basic." And I said to myself, oh, like, I have to learn. I feel like in order to get my foot in the door in the Slavic world, I should learn an easy Slavic language. But the, the thing is that there's no such thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like Slavic an oxymoron, language. yeah. Slavic languages are so, so conservative and contain so many features that make them hard. Oh, yeah. I'd say for it's just absolutely mind-boggling that the word if in Polish is broken down by gender and number. Mm-hmm. And when you and it, it it's it's a particle that seems like it should be completely independent of nouns and and noun declension. But then you like if you want to use if you want to use a noun and then a verb and then you want to describe this noun like for like he is good like on jest dobrze it would be like that dobrze is in the nominative case but he is a man mm-hmm. would be in the instrumental case and he is he is not a man would be in the genitive case. Oh God. Yeah. And these three cases are things you have to learn to say the most basic things. <laughs> so in German, you can begin with sort of nominative and then you can move into accusative, then dative, then genitive, and it can all go very gradually. When you start learning Polish, you have to learn everything at once. It right. seems. Yeah, it's, it's notoriously hard. Yeah, and uh, it it only starts to sink in once you've just put hours and hours into it. <laughs> right. Is it on Duolingo yet? Oh, absolutely! I finished the the tree. <laughs> so you're keeping and it golden, and I'm trying my best. <laughs> but even like even on Duolingo, if I feel like I got. If I got all of those words just burned into my brain, I still wouldn't be able to read a news article or something like that. Of course. Speaking of Duolingo, that's something that people often like to take, uh, well, as they, as they say in England, take the mickey out of sometimes. Um, what do you think about, obviously you're a contributor to Duolingo, you're absolutely biased but in your eyes what are, what are the main strengths of of using duolingo to learn languages with i'd say let me first start out by saying i'm not an official spokesman of any kind <laughs> but i'd say what i really like about duolingo is that they're scientifically based they have an like a series of ab tests to determine the best methods that people learn languages with and if something doesn't work they'll remove it and they'll always test everything on on half the user base in order to see if it improves learning and that level that like kind of organic 
progression that the program goes through is something that I, I find really impressive. And it just, the quality of the course though, and the quality of its pedagogy, of its ability to teach, is something that's somewhat dependent on the people who volunteer for the course. Sure. So if, if the volunteers are not putting in the time, energy, and effort to make a well-structured course, then the course might not be, might not be great. And as, as tempting as it is to think that the quality of all the Duolingo courses is equivalent across the languages, uh, it's not perhaps the case. Well, it's different people, isn't it? I mean, yeah, but uh, maybe some people don't know that Duolingo is not, of course, they're producing all the languages, but it's more of a, they're more organizing volunteers than producing it themselves. So you don't have that kind of quality, not control necessarily, but it's just each course, it's, it's their own, it's, it's, it's its own kind of living creature you know it evolves differently from all the other courses they might start with the same template some of them but then yes. the volunteers kind of take it in this direction so i i don't think that's a very fair criticism <laughs> like oh the danish course was much better than the norwegian course well i mean <laughs> that doesn't make any sense i think they all they evolve at different levels but they the criticism that i have is that I, yeah, I, I'd say that it's just dependent on, like, all the courses will, will get better over time. And that's, and, but they'll have different starting places. And they'll have different, I, I think that to learn a language, there's a somewhat of a logical progression that the grammar needs to be introduced yeah. in and the, the vocabulary and sometimes i feel like that for certain courses it's a little bit out of place it's right the method is to put in the method is perhaps not so good with really grammar intensive courses because you need to have lots of those info sheets or whatever it co it's called the note pages or whatever whereas other languages like english it would be very obvious uh, what the changes are, what the no new knowledge is, but for languages like Russian, you need a lot of, by the way, this is how you do this kind of in-between stuff uh, from all the, just the translation and the pick out the right image or and whatever the, they have now for the active learning parts. I'd say that the courses are very well structured in general and i think that i mean the the volunteers only build the courses that have fewer than five million or so learners so the really big courses are are developed by the people who actually work at duolingo sure and i don't want to get off on a tangent saying that like oh these courses contain giant errors or <laughs> or like gaps in pedagogy just to say that um, I'd say that by and large they are built by pretty devoted people some of them do stall out like in development um, there might be a year before a course really gets off the ground sure. and so it process. can be a little bit of yeah it can be some disappointment because everyone's sort of waiting for this one course uh, 
and you might have to wait a bit like like there's a huge culture of people just saying this this course is fully developed it's at 100 percent. why can't i learn it <laughs> there's a huge there's a huge process that involves implementing the audio and sure. making sure that it runs smoothly and then tests smoothly and that's so beyond the the point of what the contributors are able to do and it's now in the hands of the developers who are working the code behind the scenes sure what do you think about the actual learning that's done that's another criticism that often comes up when talking about duolingo um yeah. people say well a lot of people who use duolingo are, are you know teenagers who just put it on their phone because it was the top of the google play market or ios market and while they do well they are doing the lessons they're not really learning that much um do you, do you think how much do you think you learn with duolingo if you had to kind of compare it before and after of uh of, you've done a course i haven't done one so i don't i have actually yeah. no idea how much you actually do learn if you want if you wanted to it, re it really depends on the language and how easy the language is to begin with mm -hmm. so I, with the norwegian course you can I don't it's it's more of a like an exposure thing duolingo is perfect for exposing how exposing to you how a language sounds and how it's written mm -hmm. it they're still working on the on the component of producing the language from you i'd say that like there was a long time a lot of people the algorithm sort of pushed people into translating into English or into the native language from the, the language you were learning mm. and not so much the other way around. And that eventually they're going to develop, hopefully soon, and implement this robot or chatbot device that will allow you to communicate naturally with a computer. At least that's how I understand it from <laughs> from the CEO's uh, interviews. Yes. In order to better facilitate kind of spontaneous learning, Production. spontaneous conversation. Exactly. But I think that at this point, like be, going through the entire Polish course from beginning to end, not knowing a single word in Polish at the beginning, I'd say what I know now that I didn't know then is Polish spelling, Polish pronunciation, mm -hmm. uh, the rhythm of the language, the very basic structures and patterns of the language. Uh, I've been exposed to a lot of vocabulary that I could easily build on and recognize. Mm -hmm. And some I can speak in a, in a very caveman kind of Polish, <laughs> but I'm not, I, I'm not going to be having fluent conversations until I until I really keep up with it and like I'm a huge believer in the input hypothesis sure but I think that I think you have to be you have to listen to and read and write any given word in any given conjugation 10 times before it actually sticks in your brain you have to keep forgetting in order to remember mm-hmm And that's something that's really frustrating because <laughs> like, you have to go through 10 different failures 
of not knowing a word before you actually do know the word. And if you let one of those instances trip you up, you're, you're going to lose a lot of steam. But you have to just keep saying like all this failure and all this non-recognition, all this not knowing what the word means is going to lead you to actually knowing what the word means at the end of the day. <laughs> right. And also, I think what I usually say is there are very few methods in the world where you're going to end up with that useful, fluent language at the end if you only use that method. I mean, mm -hmm. a teach yourself or an assimil might have you uh, further along the way, but it also it takes a lot longer to get through, I would imagine. Uh, definitely getting through properly and not just you know glancing through. But one method on its own is rarely enough to produce a high level in a language. So I always say, well, if you're on your phone, if you have a commute or something, you know, might as well put on a bit of Duolingo, you know, have some fun with it. And, well, you know, it can't hurt you to get extra exposure to the language. No. I'd say I don't ever really, like, I remember being bad at speaking German. And then I, but I had all the grammar in my head from German classes. And I just didn't have the, I couldn't get used to hearing myself actually speak fluent sentences <laughs> until I, um, until I attended like a bunch of the cafe stunden that they were having at these like coffee clutches that they had at the, the German house when I, where I went to school mm -hmm. and having those only German moments like that got my fluency up. But at the same time, it couldn't have happened if I hadn't had the years and years of having it in the background. I think it's a two-step process. It, you first flood your brain with the language <laughs> to the point of drowning, to the point of, like, I know these, these verb forms backwards and forwards, and I can say them in my sleep. And the, the use of it can only come after that. Sure. I definitely agree. And I also think that you can strengthen the language without studying it as well. If you give it a, a good, if you work a lot on the language, like German, if you learn a lot of words and then you take a break for a few weeks, I find that I'm usually stronger in the language when I come back because it's kind of been, I don't know, brewing in my brain or my brain has had time to assimilate or whatever. And brain has been mating. Yeah. Basically, it's been brewing the the on the on the all the input that I've been giving it. So, I don't think I don't think people should be worried about taking a break once in a while and just let those memories kind of settle in. I was amazed by being about halfway through. I went about halfway through the Polish Duolingo tree in like a sprint that took maybe one or two weeks. And I said to myself, like, oh, I, I came back to it months and months and months later. And I said to myself, I'm not going to remember anything. Right. It's been such a long time. But it comes back so fast. And so many of the patterns stick in your brain that you never thought would. That it's, um, it, it, I liken it a lot to, like, taking a nap or a rest. When you go to sleep, you're your brain like recycles all these thoughts yeah. and it's something that's really healthy for your mind to think about other things. And I think this has a lot to do with my initial conversation about 
learning Swedish and then learning Norwegian, if you sort of go back and forth, it, 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 and just expose your brain to other things, it sort of hits the reset button. Yeah. I like that. I mean, our brains are so incredible. <laughs> I yeah. I really think so. And I think variety is also really important. I have, um, I'm someone who doesn't really like, I can't, like, can't really get a book to trap. I can't get very many books to sort of keep my attention for more than a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have, I just bought this Lonely Planet Polish phrase book. And it explains the grammar in tables that's surprisingly useful. And I think that because something like a phrase book is trying to get as much useful information into your head in such a quick time, it it does help in a way that if I didn't have this, I would be really lost. Right. And using graded, like using easy readers i remember going to the the fantastic kaufmann bookstore in berlin and i got these three books in easy latin easy italian and easy polish right and uh of course there's no such thing as easy polish but it's as close as you can get (laughs) easier polish easier exactly (laughs) and they have some some little poems and and short stories about like pretty like the girl goes to the store and she buys an ice cream cone and it falls on her lap that kind of stuff uh, like uh, your first reading experience in in your original school in primary elementary school right where you have it, where learning your first language you have to start with a super simple vocabulary right what do you use and to start- expand your vocabulary I'm sorry? What do you use to expand your vocabulary now in your various languages? That's tough. I'd say um, it depends on how far along. I'd say for for a language like Polish, where I'm still definitely in the A levels, I I would use an easy reader or a graded reader. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit better in Italian, and there's an easy reader I just got at a bookstore that has CD that comes along with it. Oh, wow. Which is good to get kind of the flow, even though Italian's pretty phonetic. Yeah, and pronunciation. I mean, there'll be things to pick up for sure. I would say for a language that's sort of in the B range, I think you might want to move toward a book that's that's like on the easier side or a newspaper. Right. Do you use any lists or flashcard apps or any of that stuff? I don't. I I am fascinated by the idea of <laughs> the I think it's called it like the Swabish lists. Okay. And that's the the lists that have the frequency, the most frequent words in the language. But they always tend to be the same kind of things like woman, man, child, things sure. like that. And those are the things that are Oh, those are the things that you really have to get drilled into your head in the very beginning sections of of any given course. Mm. But I think that if you're exposed to them enough times, if you see a word enough times, you'll just make a mental note of it, that this is a word 
this is a word that's really common, that's really important, and I need to memorize. Right. And I think that exposure in a given context is going to be way more useful than a flashcard. Right. Yeah. And I'm very like a fan of you won't really learn the word dla, which means for in Polish, unless it's in a context where that would actually make sense. Yeah, so you'd learn a whole sentence to uh, to learn that one word would make more sense. Yeah. But you can have sentences on flashcards. You totally can. <laughs> and uh, I think it was, I forget which famous, quote-unquote famous polyglot once said this, but they never have flashcards in their mother tongue. They always try to make the flashcards completely in the other language. Right. Or using some kind of a picture. Right. Gabriel Weiner did that, for instance. Uh, I know he, he doesn't have English on his flashcards. He just has a picture representation of, of the flashcard or, yeah, something like that, which is also kind of strange, but it works. It works. I, I'm someone who... I think for, for flashcards that can really work, uh, I still get a good amount of... I, I still get the feeling that like when you translate sentences on Duolingo, it's ultimately going to help you. Sure. Because I think like the the pedagogy of Rosetta Stone is we're not going to teach you anything with English. We're going to use just images. Yeah. And you're going to get everything through context. But so many abstract verbs and nouns, you really just need a straight up translation. Yeah. You're going to need, um, one of my favorite sources to use is Wiktionary, mm-hmm. which doesn't have every word in the world, but I think Wiktionary in combination with something like Forvo is just an incredible combo. Yeah. Have you heard of Forvo? Yeah, it's the pronunciation uh, thingy where people submit their them pronouncing their own language. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's a great, great uh, crowdsourced uh, pronunciation examples. It's quite good. It has a huge database for, oh, for many languages. It's amazing and free. Like, <laughs> if you only have like the IPA to go on, you're still not going to be able to pronounce that like crazy Czech R. Right. Well, and uh, obviously, losing out on the pronunciation is something that a lot of home students do because they you only have to teach yourself or the uh, whatever textbook you've chosen and or the SML even and like me sometimes people are too lazy to put on the CD <laughs> so you just read oh, yeah. and I do that all the time and it's just really terrible because it really halts pro- the progress in pronunciation but too hard I'd say that yeah if, if you like the audio is so important for the rhythm of the language yeah i when i bought these two books i bought a i bought the full complete yourself like it was on sale (laughs) i bought this just because it was on sale but it was the complete greek teach yourself um booklet and Mm -hmm. cds alongside the italian one and i have all these cds now and i just looked at my computer and i said oh I just I don't have a CD player in my computer. <laughs> this <laughs> this oh, is something I have to buy on Amazon. So yeah, I yeah. went and bought this like this brilliantly 
like an, strange piece of technology called a CD player. An external p an external CD player. Yeah, it's like it's such a strange like <laughs> time warp. Yeah. To plug this in, <laughs> to plug this into your computer. Yeah. Oh, this it used to be so convenient, and now it's so inconvenient. What else works like that? <laughs> you know, um, I've, I'm old enough to remember when CDs were introduced. Um, not the music; they they were quite. I mean, they were very popular when I when I grew up. But the PC CD-ROMs, you know, you could put in the computer. Uh, I I remember using diskette uh, discs a lot, and uh, they were just terrible. They were awful. Like, there's no space on a on a cassette. There just isn't. And uh, then when this the CDs came out, I was like, wow, you can have 600 megabytes on one CD. You know, these small, tiny uh, discs would only have, like, a couple of megabytes each. So mm-hmm. to install Windows, I remember installing Windows uh, 3.1 using uh, disks, and it was, like, 19 disks. <laughs> yes, I remember my dad having a copy of, like, Windows 95 with, uh, like, just a bunch of floppy disks. Yeah, exactly, floppy disks. So they were just so terrible. So I, when the CDs came out, I was like, wow, this is amazing technology. And now we've just sort of gotten rid of it in, in favor of USBs and memory cards and all this, which is, of course, brilliant. But Direct downloads. Yeah. Yeah, direct downloads. Why, why do you... Like, my internet today is faster, like by a factor of probably 10 of what my hard drive could even transfer back then so you know why do you need storage but then again you find an, a nice old teach yourself or whatever and they're like here's your CD in fact I have an SML CD in front of me Ungarisch yep. ohne Mühe and oh I love that luckily my computer is I don't know if it's good enough or old enough or whatever it is, but it actually does have a CD drive um, and I can put it in. Um, but I like what Colloquial have done with, uh, you know, they put all their audios online. Yes, so I when love you, that. So when you buy a Colloquial book, in fact, you don't even need to buy a Colloquial book. You can just go and download them. I don't know how useful they would be without the book, but um, they're for free on- online, so you don't need to worry about all these stupid CDs and discs and and stuff because it's really inconvenient especially if you don't even have a cd drive (laughs) yes i think the um colloquial has done something that i I like when companies do which is they sort of give in to a technological change yeah no they're not not like giving in they're just adapting i think i i think I, i perhaps that's too strong of a word but they they make a concession that that is a, a positive step forward and that gives them it, it's positive for their brand for sure because they they sort of level with the customers that the customers know they, they don't want cds and that their real product is the books yeah i just don't like and, when i ha- when i go to the asimil shop i have the option yeah. of do you want to buy the book or the book and the cd because to me right. they're like both integral parts of the product it's like buying a computer without a keyboard you know right. it's like would you like the computer and the keyboard or would you just like the computer and it's like well, i can't really use it without a keyboard can i so it depends on if you already have the let's say you have the language as a, a heritage language uh-huh. it's a language you've, you've learned all your life uh through your childhood but you just never got around to read and write it Mm-hmm. 
it it would be perhaps uh, sufficient to have the text. But I think you'd learn better with the audio anyway, even if you know how it's supposed to sound. I still think I, your memory is better. You learn better because of the you know the memory hooks of seeing it and listening to it at the same time. I'd, I'd agree with that. But we'll see. I haven't actually tried this. I think this is actually more of a software, but it looks kind of old. And I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. I, I promise to take a look at it. And uh, <laughs> it says on the back for Windows two thousand XP Vista Windows seven, not Mac OS. <laughs> yes. that's pretty aggressive. Oh, I I was very frustrated. This first uh, CD drive that I bought was not compatible with my computer because I had a Mac. <laughs> and uh, it seems like, darn it, like even in this this age where, you know, almost everyone, I don't personally have an iPhone, but almost everyone, it seems like, where I work has an iPhone and, like, Apple has sort of come to its own. <laughs> but there's just so much that still is incompatible. <laughs> Yeah, and also the fact that they were kind of, they, I think they were the, some of the first companies to get rid of the CD drives as well, just to uh, have lighter PCs, like the, yeah. uh, the the MacBook Air, I guess, the first MacBook Air was probably one of the first ones that didn't have it, and now yeah. I don't think many of their computers even have a CD drive, definitely no. not the 13-inch uh, and, and below, I, I suspect, I don't know the entire no. range, but... I think a CD drive is quite rare in, in these portable laptops these days. I'd say for sure. But then again, who needs a CD drive? You know, you can just download. <laughs> just download away <laughs> from anywhere. Hey, yeah. Unless you have these these teach yourself CDs. <laughs> you need those, yeah. Well, you should probably, I mean, you could probably uh, copy them to your computer so you don't have to load them from the CD every time. <laughs> That's oh I've done that but just every time you get a new one yeah it's you, annoying uh, isn't it they should that's yeah but I guess these are old courses so you can't really fault them for not going with the times but I got the new um teach yourself french I don't know how mm -hmm. new it is but it's definitely a new print it seemed very fresh and that came with a cd as well how far into french are you uh zero <laughs> uh, okay I haven't started I'd it I'd say French is remarkably useful. Okay. Um, Especially when you go into Canada, I imagine. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! Um, like Montreal, like yeah, on on a face value is a bilingual city. Right. But I'd say the, the vast majority of the daily life that's done in in Montreal is in French. Unfortunately, I just gave away my teach yourself French. <laughs> Because I knew I wasn't going to learn French in the near future, so I said to my friend, "You can have it until I need it." <laughs> yeah. You might have to call him back. Yeah, I'm like, hey, 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 dude, dude, give me my book back. But I don't know. I, for, I feel like when I go travel somewhere for uh, very temporarily, I I understand a lot of people are saying, "Well, I'm going to Greece uh, this summer or whatever. I want to learn some Greek so I can talk to the locals and stuff." But I'm not really in a position with my current priority languages where I can just throw up, uh, not throw up, uh, that would be horrible, but just throw everything <laughs> away and, yeah. and just kind of 
okay, now I'm just going to learn French for a month or two. It would be useful, mm -hmm. I'm sure, but for me, it's just a distraction right now. I mean, I'm sure I'll be fine with English in, in Canada. Um, yes. It's not like it's going to change my life if I speak French. Uh, and I know some words, and half of the vocabulary is English anyway, and I had it in school, so I'm sure there's some uh, rusty French there some somewhere, but I don't do the whole, you know, I'm going to Spain on Tuesday, don't really have have any Spanish whatsoever. I might get a phrase book in the airport or something and just mm -hmm. try and practice it a little bit. Maybe do a quick, quick uh, memorize course or something, or maybe even just do a lingo course. I guess I can binge that. But the point is, I I don't really do these. I I see them as distractions mainly. I know some people get a lot out of it, but for me, it's just. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a waste, especially if you're going to a massive tourist area where you know that's going to be English speakers there for sure. I think it really just depends on... Uh, I think when I went to Puerto Rico about a year and a half ago, just being able to order my coffee and like breakfast in Spanish gave me such a ridiculous thrill. <laughs> it was um, like... It just gave me such satisfaction that something I can remember vividly right now, mm -hmm. even though it was a year and a half ago. So, so you like, like to prepare for your trips with uh, a little bit of language study? Yeah, especially if it's a language that you can kind of like dust stuff off the shelf <laughs> and uh, and say like, oh, like I remember this fine bottle of wine, or like this is something that I can really bring back to life and. Uh, try out and test out like it's the point of polyglottism is to sort of have this ever expanding library sure of of like tricks to pull out and of course you have to you know these these books get dusty they the languages get rusty of course I did not mean that to rhyme but the uh, <laughs> you ducked a suit now or something exactly or what, no, what's it called cat in the hat or whatever <laughs> the um you can it's amazing how I remember my German accent was a lot better like two years ago than it is right now. And right now it's very harsh. Okay. But I guess that's somewhat appropriate. But the, yeah, like, and I remember, I remember seeing words that I knew I knew at one point. <laughs> I just, that's, oh, that's the worst feeling in the yeah. world. When you actually knew something, uh, and now you just see it, and you're just, yep, I got nothing. That's tough. Yeah. But it's, but if you do look up the the word in the dictionary, you are going like that word is going to come rolling back. Sure, it's going to be strengthening it. Yeah, and um, and like I, I can't wait to. There's so many people at the polyglot gathering. By the way, I, I listened to your talk at the gathering. Um, after the fact, but I just was was t was very impressed, and uh, I thought it was a very eloquent and well spoken speech. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate oh, my, it. My pleasure. And uh, and being at that gathering, gathering like a few weeks ago, it just impressed upon me. These you have people there of all ages and all walks of life, yeah. and the people who are who have been learning languages all their lives. It's just like, that's something to aspire to be. Yeah. And because you can tell that they have such a sense of fulfillment from 
their hobby. For sure. It's very impressive, isn't it, when when you see these badges that are just completely full of stickers and they have a story for each of them, which is just incredible. Like, oh, yeah, in 78, I lived in the Ukraine for uh, six months and I learned the language and I went to the discos and, you know, met my future wife. And you, you have all these great stories that are only the only possible when you go beyond your I don't want to call it comfort zone necessarily, but I think a lot of people get stuck in their own little world, whether it's their own country or their own job or whatever. You know, a lot of people just go on holiday once a year. They don't actually go on any adventures. And if they go on holiday, it's like go to the tourist area, stay in the resort or whatever. They definitely don't learn any new languages so they can actually talk to the locals. Um, but then you see people, you know, like you mentioned at the gathering, who basically did that all their lives, just go learn, right. learn all these languages, which, which became doorways into culture, which became even more culture, and, and the experience and the tales they can tell of, oh yeah, I went to Burma, and I lived in Taiwan, and I, I agree with you, for me, that's one of some of the highlights, just to talk to these people, and luckily I get the pleasure to do that, also here on the podcast, talk to just these people who have been doing it for so long, and, and for them, it's just that's just life, and I really, I really enjoy the idea of just learning a language a year and um, you know seeing the world traveling around staying a few weeks in new places meeting new people trying new foods and, and stuff like that that's that sounds like a nice life that's a beautiful way of framing it I'd say something I really wanted to to touch upon that I just sort of it's been like moving over in my brain ever since I first thought of this is that I'm at a point in my life where I'm 25 now, and it seems pretty young to a lot of people, but I feel like the train is starting to accelerate, so to speak, yeah. and I'm seeing the months and the years go by faster and faster. And it's like this, um, the German word for it is Torschlusspanik. Okay. Which means like the the anxiety of watching a gate close, <laughs> right. and um, and it's a wonderful word that perfectly describes like where I am in life right now, where I am worried that opportunities are going to to slowly kind of like close on me, and so you have to start planning the seeds now to yeah. you know pluck the harvest later, and. I mean, I, I watched my grandma like suffer with dementia and and throughout her old age, and it's this point where I I really want my brain to stay active, and I really want this time as best as I can get it to to slow down, and nothing makes time slow down than practicing Polish grammar. <laughs> You should um, make a T-shirt with that. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely should. You know, I'll, 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 uh, I'll take, I'll take your idea. <laughs> but it's uh, le- when you learn new languages, I think it just like it completely like throws your identity through a loop. Oh yeah, exactly. And I think that that's something that like really wasn't. It's not talked about at all in school. It's something that. I think, um, I, like, you're, when you test out this other 
this other you and you realize that like oh my god i have a different voice when i speak in german and i have a different voice when i speak in spanish when i speak in spanish i sound like a radio announcer <laughs> um, and I think that, like which is like a, a very like swat like suave deep mexican male voice mm-hmm. which is um just because i've i've that's the the I don't know, like watching commercials and announcements in Spanish was how I was exposed to the language. Yeah. And it's brilliant to think about like, oh, these influences of like, who do you sound like? Well, you sound like you know, everyone tells you you sound like your parents. And it's not just because of your biology, but because of um, and not just because of your like the way that your your throat is formed. But it's just because that's the way you sound like you you've grown up speaking in that manner yeah and you listen to them say it for many years so that's who you are and i um i hope i don't sound like the german commercial announcers because they sound like <laughs> there's something about it that's like nails on a chalkboard to me <laughs> right but like like when someone is posting on german like Diese Zeit ist anders. Like it just, <laughs> like right. it just, it's like to me. I hope I sound. I've heard a lot that like a lot of why people have accents, and I'm I'm someone who's very much um, who likes to keep his accent, his American accent, in other languages to mm-hmm. a certain degree, because I think it sounds enticing and foreign and sexy in a certain way. Um, it can. But I heard that a lot of the reason why people maintain accents is because they're afraid of sounding like they're making fun of the other right. culture. Yeah, I've heard about this, yeah. And it it's true that like when I I don't want to when I speak French or German, like you don't want to sound like you're overdoing it. No. And uh But that's a good idea I've heard from from lots of, of top performers, they told me that you have to exaggerate in the beginning with the pronunciation. And yeah, I mean, the native speakers are going to be a little bit puzzled about it, but I don't think they'll, they don't see it as that you making fun of them. They just, they they find it curious because I've tried it lots of times with Danish because obviously the Danish pronunciation is quite hard. And so I usually get two very different learners of Danish. One is the, I have I'm speaking with my normal accent in Danish, which obviously sounds horrible. And then there's the I understand that Danish is a different accent, so I'm going to overdo it a lot. And these people sound really funny to Danish speakers, but at no point did I whenever I've heard it, I didn't I never believed that they were making fun of it or just, you know, being disrespectful or anything. So I think that's mostly a limiting belief that that's what's happening. And uh, I think that if we want to improve pronunciation and sound more native we need to actually really embrace that inner voice that you just mentioned that you know embrace that radio announcer you know if that's if that's what you sound like just go all in you know and really really make it really sell it because that's when you get the whole oh i thought you were i thought this was your first language uh-huh. or whatever and um you know you don't get that if if you just kind of really sit back and you know have no confidence when you speak and all these things um so that's what i would do uh, and this is advice that's forwarded from from experts that i've talked to it's not 
I didn't I didn't discover this myself, and my pronunciation in languages are certainly uh, certainly lacks uh, some uh, improvement. Could, is desirable. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. I remember when I was in Berlin and I was hanging out with friends who were by and large Germans who were on the German for English team, um, uh, Daniela and Alex. Mm-hmm. They're two, two amazing people. Um, and I asked them like, do I sound German? Like, what is it? What is it about my accent that sounds not German? And they said, you sound pretty German, but you pause it at, at weird places. <laughs> So it's what, you, it's what you don't say that's making you sound not German. Exactly. Like you pause it at, at, at points where you're thinking of something and you're, th- you're about to say it that would, would not sound natural for a German. And it, I think it all has to do with word order. Probably, yeah. You, you're when kind you, of thinking of the English word order while you're saying a completely different one. Maybe. Yes, and you, um, it takes a great amount of... Uh, like drilling into your head for that word the german word order to sound natural in a dependent clause that kind of thing mm-hmm. or like the word order in german is like a symphony it's something that has to be orchestrated um and it's so much more it brings about a lot more stress when you speak a language like german than a language like Norwegian or Danish that has pretty much the same word order as English. Mm-hmm. And Sick. Polish has, like, Polish, they just basically, I mean, it's kind of subject, verb, object, but it's you, they can really put it any way they want to. It's a lot like Russian. Well, that that's the good thing about Slavic languages, I think, is mm-hmm. that it's very contextual contextual i don't know if that's the right word to use but they kind sure of thing. they kind of push the thing that's important at the front uh mm-hmm. whereas english and german of course as well you'll wait until the n- next full moon f- until you hear what the sentence is all about right it's just kind of funny sometimes when you hear an english speaker speak you really need to listen for ages to kind of get the gist of the sentence Whereas in Hungarian and, and also in Slavic languages, there's a huge tendency to actually say the important stuff first, mm-hmm. which is really cool, I think. It makes a lot of yeah. sense. It does give some problems for learners because you don't, you're not quite sure what word order to use because it's completely flexible because of the cases uh, and stuff like that. Um, so I often, <laughs> I'll often get the feedback from my Hungarian friends that, Yes, that sentence is correct, but we would never say it like that. We would say blah blah blah, different word order. Um, so that's the that's the challenge to sound native. There's no kind of rule. Um, you can say it's like a rule of thumb that they put the most important stuff first, but in practice, it's just probably a whatever they've heard everyone else say all their lives. So they just kind of conform to one sentence. Like, And for instance, if there are more important things in a sentence, is it more important A or B and so on and so forth? So that's definitely challenging for me. I think every language treats that emphasis factor in a slightly different way. And I think that in, in, in a language like English, you have the change in tonality to stress a certain word over another. Yeah. But can often just bring about, it can often just be brought about by the grammar itself or like by the, 
um, what you would call like there's a lot of schwas in English words that don't or, or, or words that are not pronounced I mean syllables that are not really pronounced that's sort of mumbled in American English especially oh yeah yeah and uh, especially like the infamous example is 50 versus 15 like when you're saying like how much does it cost it costs it's well we're meeting him at 915. We're meeting him at nine fifteen. Like it sounds like it, it's so ambiguous. Yeah. That in order to clarify it, you have to really like you have to spell it out nine one five versus nine five zero. And it's crazy that we have not developed a way around that yet in our language. We have so many weird. They're common enough words that you'd think that we would have established some other word or some different way of pronouncing it. Because we just repeatedly bump our heads on like things like I did and I didn't. They're so. Yeah, <laughs> like, it can be very close. They're complete opposites, but like they, they're so. The difference between them is like a swallowed nasal nothing. Yeah, or, or, or can or can't, which is probably more in, pronounced in British English, but. British American English is just can or can't. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just like, holy moly. And how, how, often, as a, how often do you hear people say, did you say can or can't? <laughs> you hear it almost every day. Almost every day. It's like people say English is this great, wonderful, perfect, well, it's not perfect by any means, but you'd think like at this point we have sort of ironed out all the ambiguities. Right. No, not at so all. Much- it's a funny oh, language. Gosh. I don't. I don't envy people who are actually learning English. Actually, I think it's oh, very difficult language. I'd say I feel, you know, it's the luckiest feeling in the world to, to realize that your mother tongue is the one that everyone else is trying to learn. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to sort of, uh, you have to recognize that just because everyone's trying to learn your language doesn't mean that you're opted out of you know or you get excluded from learning theirs no no not at all that's the that's half the fun isn't it yeah and it's all about um and i'd say like i mean i love the itchy feet comics and there was a great comic about like when you try to speak french in paris like and you don't do a very perfect job. Like the Parisians <laughs> will add at you, and they'll speak back to you in their in their English. Right. But if if you're outside of Paris, if you're in just a rural village in France, when you speak broken French, you will get adored for doing so. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, that, like, the most amazing feeling I think that you can have in language learning is just meeting someone for the first time who says. I only speak this language and I don't speak English yeah. and I'm only communicating with you right now because you put in the time and effort to learn this, this language that was not your own. And it's just a, like such a warm feeling. And I have remembered it in pretty much every language that I've studied up to that level. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a nice feeling. There are lots of nice feelings in languages. For instance, the moment you realize that you actually understand some some stuff that's going on or you can use it or you can read a, an article or, and you just think back and say, hmm, a year ago I didn't understand anything in this language, uh, let alone, you know, an article or a 
uh, or, or some kind of speech and I find that very rewarding as well but for me if just going back to the whole you know life uh, path or journey the polygon journey was what I called it um, and I think that's it, it makes a lot of sense because what you essentially do is you're saying you're taking language which people often consider a tool and you actually turn it into so much more because I think I'm not learning languages actually to necessarily use it for any particular purpose. I know some people, of course, do that. But for me, it's more that, first of all, the mental exercise of improving yourself, improving your uh, your mind. And it's also getting to be able to communicate with more people and learn about their world. So, for instance... You can visit Hungary and you can have a great time in Budapest without speaking any Hungarian, but you're never going to understand exactly what the locals think like. You're not going to understand their world. And I think it was Wittgenstein, the old uh, drunken German linguist, <laughs> philosopher, whatever, um, who said that the limits of uh, my world is the limit of the language I speak or the languages I know. And I think mm-hmm. that's so true because for me one of the most enriching experiences is just to learn about other cultures through the language because you can't really learn how people think unless you actually learn their language and uh, I feel like when you make that your life to learn about other people's language and culture and experience things whatever happens you're gonna be you're gonna have a good time and I think opportunities are going to arise like I can only I can mention so many things that have happened for me just because I started learning languages you know I've seen I've been to New York City I'm going to Canada for the first time in in a month I've been Mm -hmm. to uh, Berlin several times I've, I've traveled the world I've made friends around the world and these are things that wouldn't have happened I even got a job because of the polygon community I got yeah made lots of really important friendships and 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 really like-minded people I met. And I think if you make languages your life, there's always going to be something for you job-wise or opportunity-wise that is really going to trump everything that you would have if you just went, yeah, I'm just going to go to my local school, get a job, and just stay in my home country forever and take a holiday every year. It, it's just such a different experience. It, it's hard to even begin to compare, but... That's that's my view on it. That's that's why I do this because doors will open and they will lead to experiences that I would never have if I hadn't uh, been in this sort of language learning or been on the polyglot journey, so to speak. I I couldn't have put it better. I'd say the what's what's amazing about lifelong learning is that you will never be done with it. Right. There's never like it's a sandbox, like um, like anything, any beautiful pursuit that you have in life. It's endless, and you can make your own path in it. That's just yours. Hmm. Um, you're given a, a starting point, which is your native language, and then from there, like you're open. You can go learn whatever the heck you want, and uh, it's just completely up to you. And it it allows you to express yourself in a skill that like i mean what's it's a skill that you can have with no tools just your just your brain yeah it's not like being an electrician or a <laughs> a mechanic although it's similar in that you can take it wherever you go but it's something that can really help in a bind when you least expect it 
or yeah. it will be the thing that will lead you to your spouse or or perhaps that but i i myself like you said i'm learning like i'm not in love with anyone who's polish <laughs> right. but i and i do have some polish background polish lithuanian um ancestors here and there but i'm not learning it because of them i'm learning it because it's it's this amazingly complex code it's like a it's like being a code breaker and yeah i can't wait for the opportunity when this this slavic tongue which to me just sounds like a bun- a bunch of like chuz and was and chuz <laughs> eventually it becomes like water it becomes like this fluid that you can waft through without needing any support right. and i often make the um the analogy that like people assume fluency is this surface that you land on like a planet like when you land on the moon you know when you're on the moon mm-hmm. but there's no such thing as landing on jupiter or landing on saturn because there's no surface on those planets there's right. only density of gas and that's exactly how language learning works you think that you're you're deep enough in this language you'll be deep enough when <laughs> you know like every single kind of flower that exists in the world in this language <laughs> or when you know the fish which is like the, saying you know, never <laughs> it's a continuous um, effort you know you like in english you don't know all the names of these things I don't, and I'm a native speaker. Right, so you've proven that the pursuit of <laughs> fluency, or at least, let's say, mastering the language, is a lifelong right. um, hobby, really. And I think that's that there's something nice about that also. You shouldn't give yourself a too hard time either. If you don't know all the names of fish in German, you know, it's like, do you know it in English? Uh, no. <laughs> sure, and I, I think that... Like you can consider yourself fluent as soon as you can have a decent conversation without needing to pause too much. I agree. But I, I'd say like learning a language as as far as possible is a like Sisyphus pull it, pushing up the boulder. Mm-hmm. It's a completely futile effort, but it's your job as a human being to strive for the impossible. Yeah. I think if you can get any language that you didn't grow up with to a C2 level, uh, just using the re- the, refer- the European frameworks as a, as a reference, yeah. uh, if you can get any language to a C2 level whereby you're going to get confused with a native speaker, to me, that would be a huge achievement. Uh, and I, I would be very proud of myself if I did that. Uh, unfortunately, I think also, first of all, it's very impractical. And second of all, I I'd, I think there are very very high diminishing returns once you get to a, let's say a comfortable C1 level like the yes. time investment to get to the next level is is absolutely ridiculous because if you know I I, I don't remember the exact numbers but you know knowing 95% of the vocabulary in a book might not take you too far but getting those last five percent is going to take longer than learning the first 95 percent and absolutely a few times because they're just they're not they're very rare so for me i don't think i would set that as a goal to become c2 perfect in in a language uh i think i'm very comfortable i'd love to be good at it like really advanced probably c1 that i would be totally uh, happy with a C1 level in my foreign languages. Um, but of course, 
I would never consider myself done with any language just because I've read C1 doesn't mean that I won't start forgetting the language immediately like with Russian you know if you if I made C1 Russian I'd probably still have to study it once in a while or at least do something to keep it up otherwise it's just gonna degenerate <laughs> yeah you always there's always little nooks and crannies that you um, that you really have to learn in the moment like I had a friend who was C2 in English, like pretty much could be mistaken for a native speaker. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said the words like he went, he went to buy a mortar and pestle. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's or, very specialized. Uh, yeah. Very specialized as opposed to a pestle or he was interested in the characters in the book. <laughs> and, it's like it's it's that level of fluency like well that's that's pretty much you know i guess you would call it c1 problems or problems right. that affect only the very periphery of the language and although they might give you away as a non-native you're pretty much there yeah you're pretty pretty much don't need to work anymore um yeah but it's just at that point it becomes just uh labor of love to sort of iron out the very very fringes yeah and, um, that's good and I hope to get to that level of course one day but what's amazing about that 95.5 division is that like when you learn at the beginning levels it's by leaps and bounds yeah you'll just absolutely amaze yourself with this unbelievable progress every single time and it will come like wave over wave of of excitement i think that excitement gets tapped out at a certain point when you say to yourself like i can pretty much read anything yeah but it might not be the real case no it's true i I think for my german for instance is pretty high level i I tested as a b1 with a written exam so my Mm -hmm. uh, spoken is probably higher probably b2 and honestly, if you can do everything in a language and read pretty much any text that isn't a super complicated, uh, poetic, uh, old German text, then mm-hmm. you also start to question yourself, like, why do I need to put more time into this language if I obviously already know it to such a useful level? Like in German, if there's a word I don't know, I know German it well enough that I can explain around it or yes. use synonyms or blah, blah, blah. I don't have to resort to English at all. And I understand 99% of what people say to me. So for me, that motivation is kind of hard to find because it's like, well, why do I need to spend more time on this, you know, let alone getting to C2 level, which would obviously take an immense effort and uh, just a ridiculous project altogether. And I think we have a finite amount of time here. And I think I would rather have a lot of languages like that, you know, a really good spoken language uh, rather than trying to perfect each one of them. Although my German could still get a useful, uh, a little help, <laughs> especially in the written department. But, uh, but yeah, that would I be think- my desire, like a B1, B2 level in most mm-hmm. of my languages. I think you get a lot of mileage out of that for a relatively small investment. But of course, I don't know what my where I'm going to be in two years from now. I might be uh, teaching at some school and they say, hey, 
can you do the German class as well? And I'm like, uh, no. And then you kind of, <laughs> you have to get that language up somehow, or you want to be, maybe you want to start a translation business and you feel like, okay, I know German B1, but that's not nearly enough to translate. So I have to get it up if that's, if that's my ambition. Um, so yeah. I don't know if, if really, I don't know if life is at some point going to tell me, or maybe I'll move to Germany and I just need to improve it. So I don't sound like an idiot. I mean, that's I have, possible. I have, I had that exact same experience at my job where I advertised myself as like uh, a basic, I had a basic understanding of Italian. Right. And they said, okay, so now, now here's your golden opportunity. You're going to be researching <laughs> throughout Italy um, specific data that you have to search for on Italian governmental websites. Go ahead. And <laughs> just saying to myself, oh, that's going to be fun. But it had like, oh my gosh, I, I, in this very specific field, I feel like I can, I can talk about, about certain like demographic data absolutely perfectly in Italian now. Could I order a sandwich? Maybe, maybe less so. <laughs> it's funny. But I'd it? say that like, it's amazing how specialized your, your vocabulary can become if you only lear, lear, like, learn a language in a certain context. Yeah, yeah, for I'd sure. Say, I'd say like getting a really getting like I cannot for the life of me read fiction. <laughs> like I I know that I'm like like there's certain things I can't do in language learning. I can't read fiction and I can't Skype with someone like on Italki or I, I just get freaked out. I sure. get like like it, to me, it just doesn't seem real enough. When I'm reading nonfiction, and I have a, a huge nonfiction book that's completely about introverts, like it's the Norwegian translation of the Susan Cain book uh, called Quiet, which is about introversion. Mm -hmm. And this book contains vocabulary from pretty much every corner of life. <laughs> it's not just like lord of the rings where it's just going to be talking about like spears and dragons sure this is about human daily interaction and achievement and these words are just pretty important even at that periphery level even at that c1 c2 level in order to really pick up and vacuum up all those peripheral words it's all about reading yeah it is and that's a big part of language as well i mean not maybe not the first stages but eventually reading will be important if you want to really have a full package in the language uh, so you can read those articles and maybe even more importantly read people's emails and messages <laughs> there was a um there was a great talk at the berlin gathering about i think it was about getting i'm not sure if it was it was the one about getting your your advanced language skills up or if it was about it was some more scientifically oriented talk about the best more like what the quantitative data says about right. the best learning methods and i and the guy at the very beginning sort of echoed a sentiment that i've lived my whole life where he just cannot stand the the bs storyline of like a a teacher self or colloquial book where they'll have the 
man and the woman go out and the they family. buy a map. <laughs> yeah, like that's not my life. That's not <laughs> like that. I, that's something I absolutely like turns off my brain. Yeah, and I, I asked this guy like, is there a way that I can start that we can start learning languages with nonfiction? And he says it cannot be done. <laughs> you you have to like it is imperative as a language learner to begin your language learning journey with some beautiful story of this person traveling to that country yeah. and buying a map and making new friends. Sure. But that, that does happen, though. There are some people, I, I, I frequently complain about um, the less useful sentences in Pimsel, for instance. They often talk yeah. about booking hotels. I never stay in hotels. Uh-huh. Uh, like they talk about the family with two kids don't have a family or two kids and so for me personally it's quite irrelevant so it's my view but then somebody wrote to me and said hey I actually have a wife and two kids <laughs> so these <laughs> sentences are very useful for me and I'm like yeah okay I guess that makes sense but I, I guess it has to be underlined that everything I say here and, 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 and write on the blog as well is, is from my perspective so I guess the problem with these books is that they need to address a really wide audience. Um, I don't know if there's any way of doing that uh, without including like the family and the hotel booking and all these standard situations. But it would be nice if some of them actually did some new stuff. I guess Benny's new books might be useful in that regard to teach yourself language hacking. I'd say like... I, I feel like I was too harsh on Duolingo earlier, especially as someone who is actively <laughs> volunteering there every day. And I have to say that the like the skills on Duolingo are organized by certain themes that are either grammatical or vocabulary oriented. Sure. But but there's no storyline. And some people could call this a real disadvantage because you don't follow along. Mm-hmm. But when you when you have that expectation your brain kind of like when you have an expectation about what something like something that's going to come up in a conversation, you don't pay attention to it as much as you would if it was a completely different sentence about ducks and tuxedos. Right. I'd say a big advantage of the Duolingo sentences being completely detached from context is that every single sentence presents a new scenario Mm -hmm. and those different, that variety is what keeps your mind active. Right, that's, I, that's the theory. Uh... We have a sentence in our course, um, my spaceship is full of herring. <laughs> and it's an, it's an homage to my hovercraft is full of eels. Right. And, but we don't teach the word hovercraft or eels. But we, it's like so many times people complain about sentences like that. I would never use this sentence. I would never dream of using right. it. I actively hate this sentence. <laughs> or like the most apolitical sentence of all time could get, could be perceived of as this great offense to them and their nation. And what's important is to come back on these sentences and say, hey, we threw you a curveball for a reason. So that, so that your brain gets like out of its comfort zone. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's the theory. But I, I don't know exactly the, 
to me, it seems like a trade-off, right? I mean, yeah, you get slightly more memorable sentences, but you're not likely to actually go out and use them. So, you miss, like, you, 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 you might learn more about how the language actually works, but it would be interesting. I mean, have they tested? Well, I guess they do test that regularly, but what about actually useful sentences versus unusual sentences? Uh, because I, I, I think the Duolingo method is is good with the mm-hmm. with regards to what uh, sentences they teach I, I do believe that these funny sentences are part of what makes it uh, memorable but also what makes makes you want to keep doing it so it's not like just I have a suitcase I have a bike my mom is eight years old uh, you know yes. it's not these boring sentences it's actually like my duck eats a beer or my bear is hungry or something you know you, you you take it extra you think about it more because it's not these complete random uh, useless sentences that every course has but then right. on the other hand i do remember myself especially from something like asimil actually underlying sentences where i say okay this is a sentence i would say verbatim sometimes this would be really yes. useful and if i was a really productive student which i'm definitely not as most people listening would know uh yeah. i would take that sentence out of the SML and put it into memorize or anki and then yes. learn it that way i think that would be a great way to do it so i think it's a trade-off at the end but i do think there's certainly merit to it it's not a negative about duolingo i'd say we um it, what makes our courses different is that we have the courses, we have the sentences that are kind of strange, but it doesn't s- stop us from having the useful sentences too. Right. We have, we have plenty of phrases and sentences in our course that are useful and that you would use verbatim. But and it's not to discount the sentences that are weirder because even though you might not say my hovercraft is full of eels you might still say my room is full of crap or my glass is full of milk or my, uh, like just learning the constructions regardless of the, like the nouns or the adjectives that will flow in and out of the construction. Yeah. But learning the construction is what's, is the, the framework that it's building up in your mind and having the ability to swap out whatever you want to, is something that I think takes time as a language learner. It's a skill within language learning mm-hmm. that you don't really know that you're working on if, if you're learning your first foreign language. Right. If you learn your first foreign language, you say to yourself, I basically need to parrot everything that I learn. Mm-hmm. And, and different. you don't realize that in order to speak a language, you need the ability to improvise and to make do with what you have. Yeah. And that's it, it was what causes it is, which causes like a lot of like freeze ups when you're actually speaking it. <laughs> Cause you're saying like, Oh my God, I don't, I don't know the word for defenestrate. Right. How am I going to, how am I going to uh, make do in this conversation? You have to make do with what you have. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely think it's it, it's a good it's a good way to pro, provoke a kind of, what do you call it creativity in in when you're designing language. I, I compare it sometimes to a, a jigsaw puzzle, where mm-hmm. language learning is essentially just putting more and more pieces into the puzzle, and mm-hmm. that way you sort of learn 
the whole picture at once instead of just learning a few sentences at once which would be part of the picture or whatever with the sort of plotting in the jigsaw puzzle a piece at a time you're going to learn a little bit about a lot of areas in the language instead of just learning the basic tourist phrases and then rattling them off uh, from memory which is a different skill from actually producing sentences uh, so I yeah I, li- I like that concept a lot actually but I don't know if it's totally apparent maybe people are not aware of this <laughs> but that's, a, that's the reason I thought it was a, it's a nice analogy because especially if you build the frame of your puzzle mm-hmm. it's it's easy enough to intuit what's going to be in the middle right and I'd also say on that same point, like the piece at a time method is something that I, that I read about um, Benjamin Franklin doing. Okay. He, was a, he was a founding father of the United States. He was a very accomplished guy. But when he would play chess with one of his friends, if he were to lose a round of chess, the next time he played chess with his friend, he would have to have memorized like a certain amount of Italian grammar. Okay. And recite it to his friend as like a price for having lost the chess. <laughs> and this was how he learned Italian. That's interesting. And it, it seems like, oh, like I would so, I mean, so many of the, the founding fathers of the US were polymaths and they were just obsessed with learning all kinds of weird fringe things but also like scientific and and linguistic things that i think that we think of as being easy only in our time because you know imagine how difficult it would have been to learn italian in the 13 colonies when it's extremely difficult to even find one italian (laughs) and um and all you yeah you must you must have only had books there was basically nothing else, and you. Um, and the internet was ca- wasn't really. They hadn't really developed it yet. It hadn't really taken off at no. that point. <laughs> but um, but yet you had you know, Latin and Greek were kind of like. We're very much at the starting point of like all, education, for the wealthy. Back then, sure and. Uh, it, it, you know, learning these other languages was just only an extension of that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I like it. And, and this is sort of my favorite topic about the language. The, I guess the, the big picture of language learning, if you had to use the, keep using the metaphor of a jigsaw puzzle, you know, is, is really something that I appreciate. And, and it does mean, I think, if that's your focus, it does mean that you might be a little bit slow out of the gate. It might feel like you're not really getting anything done. But then mm-hmm. once you start connecting the pieces and you start, you know, connecting the, the the knowledge you have about grammar to newly learned vocabulary to seeing these patterns in every sentence, it really does a- accelerate quite quickly. And that's that's definitely exciting for me. Absolutely. And it's something that can only be experienced yourself and it's it's hard to explain this kind of joy to someone who's never done it. Yeah. So the message is, people, 
do it. <laughs> get out, get out, and do it. Well, most of the and people listening, I'm sure, uh, are very familiar with what we're talking about. But if if you're sitting out there and you you know haven't quite started learning that for foreign language yet, or you're thinking about it, you know, really just get started. It's it's, it's well worth it. Absolutely, and the joy is limitless. Yeah, and you can end up making friends from all over the world or suddenly staying in a hostel in Europe or, <laughs> you know, there's so many things that can happen due to languages. And just career-wise, you know, we're, we're living in a kind of, I would say, an uncertain time period where there's no such thing as job security. But mm -hmm. if you have an extra language or two, you'll always be able to find work somewhere, somehow. And for me, that gives me some some comfort that the skills that you build sort of to have fun with and mess around with and experience other cultures with is actually a, a usable skill you know like you mentioned earlier it's it's something you put on your resume that you actually speak croatian or, or whatever and and people will or potential employers will see that and say hey we do a lot of business in that region but we haven't we haven't had any applicants with english and croatian before so of course we chose you you know that seems yes. to me very obvious that that's going to be a huge thing of of today and tomorrow it also just shows an intellectual curiosity yeah that i think um if you if you don't speak it from a familial standpoint if it's never been in your family and you just learned it uh for the sake of learning it uh then someone's going to look at that and say we want someone who is worldly and interesting oh, yeah. and like you don't want to like you don't want to i'm hesitant to like to say that you want to be interesting for being the sake of interesting because <laughs> that's like that's a huge cultural um fad in in like especially american culture nowadays like i'm a i'm an interesting person so like you need to look into me and like i think it like, makes sense though it's like you're adding value to your character by learning other languages and that's just intrinsic value so you are by definition more interesting like if you if you went to a let's say you went to boston and you went to a cafe and you met someone you said oh yeah i, I speak norwegian they're going to be like well wh why and how and you know suddenly you become 50 percent more interesting and it's a conversation starter yeah <laughs> but I'd say, I'd say you can't let that drown out the value of of your own personal enjoyment of just having it in your head yeah even yeah. if it, even if it was a complete secret it should never be for any you shouldn't do it for other people this i think that's yes. the that's the verdict is it's basically you learn because you want to learn and the value that it brings is sort of like a a bonus i think uh, the the job prospects is is a bonus i think the the fact that i can meet people from all over the world is is way more important than any job i mean you can always find a job somewhere somehow but it never hurts to have more qualifications and more languages to to do it in and if you're not feeling it don't force it right i'd say if you are learning a language because you feel from ex some external pressure that this is what you should be doing and it like Sure, like you can give the language a chance and it might grab you, but if it doesn't grab you and you say to yourself, like, I, uh, I need to learn this because everyone says it's useful. <laughs> that's the worst. 
that is the worst thing it's gonna be hard trust me i've i've done that you know it's it's very difficult to learn without the proper motivation sometimes you don't find proper motivation so you kind of have to grind through it but ideally you should really find some reasons to learn the language if not before you do it then definitely after i would say try and find some reasons like a, a relative or a friend or cultural reasons tv shows movies whatever music even just anything food food oh yeah yeah <laughs> food is the most enticing reason i'd say to learn like i think it can be it can be especially like because that's how you will connect like all the enjoyment through the food like for sure i i don't know exactly how to express that other than like when you taste something delicious and you know how to pronounce it <laughs> that, is, that is a great joy in life oh yeah it really is or uh, just getting to know other cultures food or you know their eating culture because it's usually very different like i'm sure you've when you got into norwegian culture you started to eat more fish and herring and whatever they eat up there i, I don't quite know but the cuisine is quite different from america for sure <laughs> i'd say um like something that dawned on me today and and was that like, <laughs> there was a joke that was made in my history class in high school that like comparing and this is uh, perhaps in bad taste but it was comparing the german and japanese cultures at the dawn of world war ii mm -hmm. and they were saying like what do the japanese and the germans have in common besides fascism and expansionism at this time and the other option was they both have pickles. They both love pickles. And I'm saying to myself, that's really odd and funny, but it doesn't really amount to much. But then I thought about it more as I started making my own pickles. <laughs> and I've gotten uh, and I've gotten like somewhat good at it because I think they're absolutely delicious. Right. But what thinking about it really deeply, what is the pickle as a representation of the culture a pickle is planning for the future yeah this pickle is well preserved it's food that can be preserved for a long period of time without refrigeration yeah and that kind of planning is quintessential to german and japanese economic culture and like a lot would you know a lot of people would say it's also quintessential to the social culture mm -hmm. but like I just happen to really like pickles. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's great to find so, a hobby that you, you enjoy for sure. It's it's um, it's just really fun, and it's very yeah it has nothing to do with language learning, but <laughs> it's just um, it's just to do something yourself and to say I did this all by myself. Yeah, well, that is like language learning, though. Absolutely, you can and, definitely learn a language on your own. And, and you're it's planning just, for the future too. So learning a language is a lot like making pickles. I think it really is. That should be the title of the episode. <laughs> right, making it's pickles. <laughs> yeah, when you pickle when you pickle something, you know you you're not going to be enjoying it for like at least a couple of days. Right. Well that's funny and because the, um people, you know, I, I know that people's uh, focus uh, isn't what it used to be, and I know some people love to listen through uh, all the ep uh, all throughout the episodes, 
Yeah, but I also yeah. know a lot of people uh, cut it off. So it's kind of like um, <laughs> if you if I called it, you know, the pickled method or whatever, it would be kind of a, a bonus to the people who listen all the way through the end. I think that's Hopefully. kind of nice. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely do that. But, oh, please do. But, um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show and, and sharing your your passion. And, uh, you know, we've had some technical problems, but this time I think we'll be good. We have a full recording uh, from start to finish. I don't have to do too much to it. So so thank you for, for sort of repeating yourself a little bit. But it's a topic that is worth repeating. And we got into some different tangents as well. So... I definitely yes. had some some fun with it. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, Chris. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Actual Fluency Podcast. If you want to come onto the podcast and share your language learning story, don't hesitate to apply on actualfluency.com forward slash guest. See you in the next one.